1. I want to share with you a couple of things as we get started just about Daniel in general. So hopefully that will help, help you as we kind of work through it. Uh, basically, just kind of know we'll do an 11-week study of Daniel, mainly just moving chapter by chapter as we tr- uh, move through it. And hopefully we'll be able to do that again in 11 weeks. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, one of the things you'll see here, like just as you, if you're reading Daniel, or maybe you're going to spend some time maybe reading it yourself, there's, um, there's 12 chapters in Daniel. And a lot of times if you hear people talk about it, or even you'll see somebody will say, hey, let's do a character study of Daniel. And they'll study Daniel chapters 1 through 6 and then kind of leave out 7 through 12. Uh, just so you know, one of the things about it is 1 through 6 is more of the story of Daniel's life and 7 through 12 are more like prophetic portions. So they're going to talk about visions that Daniel has and we'll talk about those and look at those together. Uh, another way to read it is if you were reading it in the original languages, like typically you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. So most of the Old Testament's in Hebrew, but in Daniel, something unique happens in chapters 1, 1 through 2, 3, uh, it's Hebrew. And then if you look at 2, 4 through 7, 28, it's written in Aramaic, which was the most common language of that time. If you keep moving forward in 8, 1 through 12, 9, you'll see that it moves back to Hebrew. And so one of the things about that is it kind of makes you kind of read it and say, okay, why, did, why is some of it in Hebrew and some of it in Aramaic? And some of this may be tied to what Sinclair Ferguson will kind of talk about, the structure. But what's happening is that language, the Aramaic language, many people would understand. It's kind of the language of the nations at that time. And so it opened the door for people to understand that God is Lord over everything. And so I want to kind of lay out a couple of things for you about that section in Aramaic. And if you're taking notes, you could just kind of write this down. There, there is this kind of structure within the Aramaic, which is, you, you may have heard people say uh, uh, a chiastic structure before. I don't know if you know that, but an outline, it's kind of outlined like this. If you were making an outline, we would say A, B, C, and then C, B, A. And, and that's kind of how the outline would be. So like point one and the last point would kind of go together. The second point and the sixth point would go together. And the fourth and fifth points would be you know, they would basically be uh, the same kind of. So you can think about that in this way. In chapter 2 and 7 in Daniel, you have the visions of the four kingdoms. Both of those chapters. In chapters 3 and 6, you have the stories of divine deliverance. God is going to rescue His people. In chapters 4 and 5, you have the stories of divine judgment. And so I think it's important just to kind of see that because what you'll see is, and this is the way some people explain this, it's kind of like chapters 2 and 7, it says the Lord is over all of human history, the four kingdoms, God is reigning over all of human history. 3 and 6, you say the Lord is going to deliver His people in the midst of living within all the kingdoms of the earth, God is about delivering His people and He rescues them in the face of kind of all kinds of odds. In chapters 4 and 5, it talks about the judgment of God. And the idea here is that God will judge the whole world. Now, if you and I were reading the Bible, we talk about reading the Bible, we say it kind of like that. We say God reigns over everything. It's all His. And in the midst of this, in this fallen world, He's going to save His people. But ultimately, we know in the end, He's going to bring judgment on all and really hold on to His people. So the whole story of the Bible kind of tells us that, but this kind of breaks it down. And really, it would be written in such a way where most of the world could read it and understand what was taking place. So it's a very valuable thing. Now, 
a couple of things we're doing Daniel and so that train man every time it gets me but it'll pass soon but anyway the uh, if you're looking at Daniel and just thinking about what are some of the things that we learn from this book one of the things we have to do is often when we're reading the Bible you're reading a book of the Bible you're saying what do we learn about God and, and I think it's a very powerful thing. And anyway, this guy Sinclair Ferguson summarizes it with five truths that we learn in Daniel. First one, the sovereignty of God over all of history, as we've already noted. Second, the providence of God. What, what's the providence of God? It's the way he, he's watching over the world, all his creatures and all their actions. The providence of God in which he cherishes his people and works all things together for their good. Third, the present judgment of God hidden from our understanding but realized in history over all the empires of the world. And we know that there's things that are going on where God is working things out. There's kingdoms that rise and fall and God is working those out. Fourth, the absolute certainty that God will establish His kingdom and will reign forever and ever. Fifth, we may participate in the final glorious resurrection from the dead and the, the, the world is going to be transformed so that all is, that is away from God will be brought to Him. He's going to bring about this final glorious day. Now, what would that do for His people? This is kind of very important. Because again, sometimes people read Daniel or they'll read the book of Revelation and they'll leave there going, oh man, scratching their head. What's up with this? If you'll get these things that God reigns over the world and that He is going to protect His people, and that He is keeping them and watching over them, and that He, he really is uh, the one who is going to bring about this final restored world, what does that do for us? Well, in Daniel 11.32, it speaks about the fact that those people who know their God will be strong and do great things. In the midst of this wild and crazy world, those who know their God, they'll be, they'll be set with Him. And they'll walk in His ways and they'll be strong in the face of great adversity. So I just kind of lay that out for you because I think it's important when we start a book to say, what's the big picture of this book? And I think that kind of helps us think through that. Okay, so let's go to chapter 1. In chapter 1, we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to see, basically, we're just kind of as a brief overview, think about God allows um, Babylon to come in, this great empire to come in and take Jerusalem. When they take Jerusalem, they take these men, these young men out in the first drive, kind of like in 605 B.C. They carry out with them a lot of the, 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 the leaders of that culture, the young men that are the bright and shining stars of that culture. He takes them, he takes them into Babylon. The king there in Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, hey, put all these uh, young men in, into a program, a, a kind of a university of Babylon. He takes care of them. He provides them with the language and the rules and all the stuff going on in that nation so that he can have really great leaders to run his work. I mean, his kind of kingdom. And so he kind of does that. He builds that. Now, Daniel, in the face of that, he has this dilemma where he doesn't want to. He evidently kind of the, the food that they give him, the wine that they give him is not something that he should take because it would defile him before God. And so what he does is he has to go to these guys and say, look, Give me a chance to basically uh, not eat the food that y'all have and, and let me just eat vegetables and water and let's go on about our business. God was with him through all of that and he blessed him. And in exile, God was faithful to him. And so he ends up being able to do that and he becomes strong and great. And God really places him in the most important place, one of the most important places in the Babylonian kingdom. 
So I think what we'd have to say is, as you think about this in your own life, it's, it's when we look at our lives like right now, we would say, as Christians, we are citizens of another kingdom. America is not our home in one sense. You say, I, I was born here, man. But I mean, as a Christian, you say, my citizenship is in heaven and I'm eagerly awaiting to go home. But while I'm living here in the present, how should I live? That, that's kind of the question. Is, is, can I honor God in the present? Or, and and how, what would that look like? Because that's what Daniel does. Like Daniel, we are kind of, we're citizens of another kingdom. We're living as strangers and exiles in this world. We have a code of conduct and a way of living that is distinctly different than the world. And as a result of that, sometimes those come in conflict. And how are we going to hold fast and stay true in the midst of that kind of thing? God's called us to that. He's called us to do so and be lights in the world, and that's what we should be serious about. So that's what we'll see this morning in Daniel chapter 1. So look at 1 verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And just, I mean, if you're kind of new to the Bible, you would just say, look, what's going on here? What we'd say is from the very outset, God placed, it promised his people a land. They entered that land. Ultimately, God gave them a king. It started with King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. King Solomon walked away from the Lord at some level in his life. And so uh, he drew close uh, maybe at the end. But God said, listen, because of you, I'm going to divide my kingdom. He divides it between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is taken away into Syria in 722 B.C. never to return. The southern kingdom, Babylon, comes in and, and takes them away. Seventy years later, they'll return. But just so you know, kind of that's where we're at. Again, Daniel is set up there. He's a part of the southern kingdom. He lived probably in Jerusalem. They come in. They take Daniel out. He goes over in exile, lives in Babylon for a number of years, many years, actually. And so that's kind of what's going on here. And so God, you'll notice here in verse 2, it says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hands. Now, if you were a historian writing from a secular viewpoint, you would say, look, man, Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful guy. I mean, he's, he's bad to the bone. He just came in, said, Jerusalem's mine, I want to take him. But here we say, like from God's perspective, God is allowing him to do that. God is bringing him there. God promised his people, I will cause someone to come and take you away from the land that I've given you because of your rebellion. And so the Lord is delivering him over. It's not something like, uh, it's not God's plan. This was God's plan because of the rebellion of his people. It's kind of like when Jesus answered Pilate and he said, you would have no authority really before he was crucified over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. That's very important that we understand that God is the Lord over human history. If his people are taken into exile, it's because he has brought it about. Notice what else happens. They take some of the vessels of the house of God. He brings them into the house of his God. It's kind of this picture of uh, God's, I mean, really, God's allowed all this to take place, and this king is in rebellion against God. He's taken something holy and sacred for the glory of God, and he's taken it and placed it among his idols. It's a picture of total defeat, and God's allowed him to come in. It's a grievous sin, and that'll be picked up later. Look at verse 3. Then the king commanded uh, Ashpenaz, which is his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and the nobility, youth without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, 
learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them literature and language in the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them, uh, them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now, this is just important. He's taking the best and the brightest and he's placing them in this place. And he's going to put them in through a program and he's going to educate them. They're not only educated men, they're young men that like without blemish, they would be handsome, they'd be smart, they'd be kind of people ready to, to take the world, you know, kind of thing. He brings them in and he's going to train them up in the way that they should go, kind of is kind of the picture within the Babylonian Empire. He's going to teach them their ways, he's going to teach them their language, he's going to educate them well. Now, what's going on in that? By the way, just as a side note, it is, it's important to understand that like, we always, when we look around in the world, we see oftentimes God allows His people in different places. And He wants them. I mean, we're to learn and grow and understand. And He's going to use them in a mighty way within the kingdom. So it's very important. Now, but look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, evidently, in the midst of all this, Daniel's going to be trained in this way, but he's not to eat the food and, the, and drink the wine that was given to him. Why? Was that because you know uh, he was only supposed to eat vegetables and waters, and that's God's diet, which some people say? No. I mean, it's not like it's saying, well, the healthier thing. Daniel's like, I want a heart-healthy diet here. Too much red meat. Not, not exactly. It's kind of one of those things we see that sometimes when you hear people like talk like that. But the Jews were given very strict dietary laws. And what it did was it separated them from the people of the world. A lot of times, well, many times people eat together because they're like buddies. You know, let's go out to dinner together. Come over to my house and eat with me. I sit down with my family. We eat food. And one of the things I think it's very important to understand when you're looking at this, is that God, when He gave His people their diet, it separated from them from other people. That's one of the aspects of that. We see that if you were to read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10 with Peter. Peter was uh, kind of struggling with like these Gentile people coming to the church. God gives him a vision. This sheep falls down with all this kind of meat that he wasn't supposed to eat. God says to Peter, arise and eat. Really, it says arise, kill and eat, I think. So. But it's, it, go ahead and eat this food. And it was giving him this, this ability to have relationship with people from all the nations. So one of the things that may have happened is just, I mean, he's sitting there saying, man, I cannot eat this because it's against God's law. Another thing you might say is, okay, maybe in, in Nebuchadnezzar's house, this would happen a lot of times, there would be these animals sacrificed to his idols. And so they would sacrifice this animal to idols and this and that, and the wine may have been poured in a certain way. And so people may have said, well, hey, if we, if we eat of this, you're kind of like taking their gods and enjoying their gods and, and finding strength from their gods. It may have been one of the other things. The point is not eat vegetables and water. It's not the point. The point is that we should resolve to honor God with our lives and stay true to His Word. And in this world, sometimes there will be pressures to not do so. 
I was talking to a young guy. I uh, took him duck hunting on Saturday. And um, after we whacked him and stacked him, uh, what we did was he uh, said to me, like I was talking to him on my way home, I was like, man, what's the hardest thing about being your age? And he was about to graduate from high school. What are some of those things that you... Uh, struggle with or whatever and he was talking about the just the pressure of his friends trying to force him into doing things that he knew he should not do he said it's like the greatest goal of their life is to do that is to cause him to like to really in a sense to like here be defiled before the lord to sin against god and I think if we're honest, like sometimes it may be just different, like this high school or that high school or this place or that place. But when we walk around and spend time with people, we know that in every aspect of life, we could rebel against the Lord. So this could be at work, home, leisure or whatever. You might say at work, I'm tempted to lie all the time. Or at work, I'm tempted to, to steal or at work I'm tempted to be lazy or at work you could just make a long list of things that I might be tempted with at work or at home maybe your your you know you your your natural tendency is to neglect helping out with what's going on in your home or taking care of your children or sitting you know just wasting your day away all kinds of temptations that we could have and I think it's important that we say that that God is not listen living in this world brings pressure it brings the ability for you easily to cherish worldliness, to rebel against God, to, to find ways to, to stay away from Him, to run away from Him, and to not pursue Him, to neglect spiritual things. There's just a long list of stuff that we have to, now listen, we have to choose to live a resolute life to resolve, to do something, to live in a certain way. We, we may not write all those down. And Remember we studied a couple years ago, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote 70 resolutions. And he said, I will not do this, and instead I will do this. He was saying, he knew living in a fallen world that there's going to be all kinds of temptations for evil rather than to live for God. He wrote resolutions that were tied to like the overall vision of his life over good works, over time management, over relationships, over suffering and character and his spiritual life. He wrote all of those things in there, sometimes multiple times. And he would go back in his mind and say, I was re I'm resolved to use every ounce of my time for God's glory. And he would memorize those things and remember those things. And he would rehearse those things. I, I would just say to you as a Christian here, the world has resolutions. They are resolved to live away from and to rebel against God. The world's resolutions are not the Ten Commandments. They are the opposite of that. The world's way of fighting is different than God's way of walking in obedience to Him. The world's ways of living and the world's values and the world's desires are not God's desires. Humanity is in rebellion against God. And so we would say, for Christians, we have repented of our sins, trusted in Christ, and we're submitting our lives to Him. And so therefore, the King's ways are, should be our ways. The King's rules should be what rules our lives. The King's thoughts should be our thoughts. The King's loves should be our loves. 
And I would just say, man, that when you walk into different industry and different lives and, and different aspects of life and different communities, when you walk into those, you have to say, what is the world's way? What is God's way? And then I know that sometimes those are going to come into conflict. And I'm going to have to stand in the midst of that. And then you kind of ask the question, well, what would that look like? Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuch. And the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear the Lord my king who assigned your food and your drink. For why uh, should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age so you would endanger my head with the king? Daniel should have been the most fearful person in the story. You see that? I mean, he's the guy that just came over here. He hasn't been here very long. He's facing these things. And you kind of say, Daniel's the one that should be afraid. But this other guy is. He's afraid of the king. But Daniel goes to him. And, and, and Daniel's going to go to these men. And it's not like, sometimes I think people think our, deal, our goal is to hate the world. Hate the culture. Hate the people in authority. He does not show hatred towards those men. He shows respect. He goes to them. He asks them politely. He submits to them at some level where certainly at some point if he was forced, he may have to go against them. But here we don't see that. He goes to them kindly. He submits to their leadership in the right way. And he says very kindly, what can I do here? I'm not going to eat the same things. I'm not to drink the same things. I don't want to live in that way. What should I do here? And the king is, I mean, this, this man is afraid and he fears what might take place for him, but, but he's going to kind of, Daniel's going to have to come up with something to try to help him be able to still obey God in the midst of this crooked world he was living in, this rebellious world against God. And look at what it says in verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for ten days. Daniel came up with a plan. A plan that, that, that what he could maybe kind of get through this thing and, and not defile himself and not turn against God. He was using all means possible to try to live for God in the midst of this world and he did it in an honorable way. Very important, I think, to see that. Now, what does it say about this that's going on? Just go back and look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and, compa and, and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. What does that show you? God's working. God's there. God is not forsaking that one that wants to be obedient to Him. You may say, man, there's things about my life right now I, I can't see like how obedience to God, pursuing what God's about, loving what God loves, I can't see how that's going to turn out good. And I would say, listen, walk in faith. God does not call His people to something that He does not stand beside them as they seek to walk in it. He loves His people. He is with His people. In the midst of great difficulty, God is there. And as we obey Him, when it does, listen, listen, sight would say, Daniel, you're a fool. But faith says, God is there with me. And I can trust Him. 
And I walk in obedience to Him. And I will pursue that with all my might. Look at verses 15 and 16. At the end of these ten days, it, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who, are the, who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. They're in a better place than the other ones, the other guys that were getting really the choicest of foods. By faith, they walk in obedience to the Lord in the face of great difficulty, and God was with them. Who's the hero of the story? God is. Who's the secret hand guiding all these things? God is. Who is the one that's fighting for them when no one understands that? God is. It's all about God's greatness and His work on behalf of His people as they seek to walk in obedience to Him. You ever fear the struggle? Like, you ever struggle with that? If I do what God would have me do, will I lose income? Will I not make it in this world? Will my children not get ahead? When, when the Lord commands me to do something, do I ever walk in unbelief rather than walking by faith? Listen, and this is some, just some things I thought about this week. I should never believe that I can live life to its full outside of the will of God. I, I should never, whenever I say, I know this is what God's about. I know this is what God's about. And somehow I say in my mind, my life would be more full if I abandon it. It's foolishness. It's believing lies. It's satanic. It's of this world. It is something that will lead you to ruin before God. It's very important that we see that. If I truly love God with all my heart and love people, starting with those in this room as myself, then I will miss out in something with something in this life. And it's a lie. It's a lie. And I must believe the truth about God and what He's done and what He's about. Jesus Christ calls us to take up our cross and follow Him. That seems costly in the present. But it's very important that we understand that that cost is no cost at all. The Christian life is winning by losing. I give up my life. I give up my future. I give up my ambition. I die to myself. And I rest in Christ. I pursue what He pursued. I love what He loves. I do that with all of my might. And the Scripture tells us that those who die to their own way will live. Very important. Pursuing the will of God for my life is the place where there's true, true joy is found and it's the place where we'll gain great reward in the future. It's a place of intimacy with God. One last thing. When I obey God, when I am fearful, uncomfortable, and powerless, then I will know His power, comfort, and security. Very, very, very important. God is with His faithful people. He blesses them with His presence, with His power, with His comfort, and with His security. Keep going here in verse 17. As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God was faithful to them. He went beyond. He gave them. This is not as if they did not study or learn or or set in the classrooms that the Babylonians had. But in the midst of that, God is giving them exceeding like abundant understanding. 
and, and, and moving them beyond what, what the others were doing. They were exceeding in all of the things that God had for them. God is not opposed to what is going on in their life. He's actually empowering that and making them very strong. I think it's very important. And I, you know, we just have to understand that. In the midst of walking faithfully with God, believing Him, trusting Him, He is with His people. He's empowering them. He's strengthening them. And He's making them useful for their service to the King in a hostile world, in a place that is in rebellion against God, in a worldly system, in this present age. He is making them more useful and more valuable for those around them. They will bless this nation by being there. The world is not their enemy. God is using them to bless that world. It's just a shocking thing that they will be greatly enhanced others by being around them. And they are respectful and diligent to learn and be the best workers they can be. That's kind of what you see throughout their life. Now, the last little scene here in verses 18 through 21, you'll note here. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. What is that talking about? So there was some discussion about this in the discussion group about what's going on there. It's, I don't think it's just that you know, they got to hang out with the king for a moment. I think the picture there is that the king brought them into his presence. They become like his most trusted people. They became like the most, uh, really, we're going to see later Daniel and those, they're going to become like the most powerful, most trusted servants in all the kingdom. He's drawing them before him, he's giving them his ear. To come before the king in this time was a big deal. You didn't just show up and say, hey, king, thought I'd come by and see you. It didn't work that way. He is drawing them into his inner circle. He trusts them. He, he wants the most difficult decisions to include them. They are wise people. In verse 20 and 21, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. God is going to continue to use him. He's going to be there for 80 years or something. I mean, we don't know exactly how many, maybe 70 years. He is there and he's going to be used greatly by God. Now, what do we do with this? If I were to walk away, what am I walking away with today? In Daniel chapter 1, I would say the sovereign Lord over all the world, the one who reigns over the whole world, is with His faithful people in their exile. And what does that mean? That means you and I, if we are a part of God's people, if you are truly a Christian, the sovereign Lord of the universe is watching over you as you live in this world and in this age that is in hostility towards God. How should I respond to that? Since I know that the Scripture says our citizenship is in heaven, we're eagerly awaiting Christ, do I go hide out somewhere in the mountains and hope that nobody ever gets to see me again? No. God is about you working within the context of this world, blessing this world, being a part of this world, and He is with you in the midst of it. And in the face of that, sometimes you'll struggle. Sometimes you'll have times where you'll say, if I'm faithful, it's going to cost me a lot. And God is going to be with His people in the midst of that. Jesus said of His disciples, I am with you to the end of the age. 
Romans 8 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So what should our goal be? As strangers and aliens in this age, what should it be? First Peter says, Peter says to them, As sojourners and exiles, he's speaking to the church. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify the God on the day of visitation. Can you see that? He's saying, be faithful. Be faithful to the Lord in the midst of this world so that people may glorify God because of it. Be faithful. Be upright. Be a person of good standing before the world. Do not wage war against the world the way the world does it. You live a godly life. And you pursue God and you trust Him and you walk with Him and He will be with you and He reigns and He controls the world and He's going to raise you up on the last day. You walk with God. So that others may see Him and glorify Him. Last verse I thought about this week was in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You are an ambassador. Now listen, listen, listen. Last little bit. An ambassador sees his role as a messenger of the kingdom. One who speaks on behalf of the kingdom. One who is walking around seeking to tell people about the kingdom. To represent the kingdom in behavior and with his tongue. So I would just say to you, man, wherever you are, I would say you have to pursue other people with a great diligence to bless them with the message of the kingdom. To be an ambassador for our King. To live in a way that would give Him honor and glory both in word and deed. So I encourage you to do that. And follow the pattern we see in Daniel who trusted in his God and saw his God faithful and was a blessing to those around him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And I ask you today to help us see how you are the one who's the hero of the story. You kept your people. You watch over your people. You guide your people. Even in the midst of a hostile world, you are with us. And you use us to bless others around us so that your name is made great. So that they might hear and believe the gospel and be eternally blessed. In Christ's name, amen.